Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Kia ora and welcome along to Seeds. My name is Stephen Moe and I'm really glad you could join me as today we're going to be speaking with Natasha Zimmerman. Now Natasha has some really unique insights into community and belonging. Not only is she doing her PhD in that, she's also started an initiative called Unchatter, which really aims at getting to deeper conversations. I know you're going to enjoy this interview because it's one of those ones where we jump from topic to topic and to start off the episode she even reads us a poem. So that really set the scene. Also, I should say that for this interview, I also did it as a video. So if you go to theseeds.nz and click the videos tab, you'll be able to watch us having this conversation as well. I'm not going to do more of an intro as this is one of the longer episodes, but if you do enjoy this, then check out the more than 100 other episodes in the back catalog. This is a repository of stories of people who are doing interesting things in the world. Now let's get into this conversation with Natasha. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Natasha Zimmerman, who's the founder of Unchatter and who is a PhD candidate in organizational psychology. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Um, it's wonderful to have you on the show because I know what you're doing and you're involved in with Unchatter. Um, it's just, it strikes a lot of things that are resonating for me in my life and um, this idea of coming together and having community. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important in the world we are today. Um, but before we get into that and talk about why you've started on Chatter and sort of what it is and sort of the reasons for it, what I'd love to do with guests is go back in time. <laughs> so we're just going to time travel to the start of your life. And I'd love to hear a little bit about where you're from. And then we'll kind of build up the picture to paint, you know, why is it that you do what you do today? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so where are you from? Okay, well, I suppose the easiest answer to that is I grew up on a farm in North Dakota mm-hmm. in America. And I actually, as a fan of your podcast, I've heard you ask other people this question. And so I brought something okay. to maybe broaden my answer to this question, which is a little poem that I wrote. And this is inspired by one of Brene Brown's practices where she has uh, people write a poem called I Am From or starting with that I am phrase. So Great. if I love you'd that. like to, let's, I'll... Let's start a new tradition here. Okay. That's wonderful. <laughs> right. And I think this um, encompasses a bit more of, of who I really am beyond just the, the geographical origin. Mm. So here we go. I am from frigid six-month winters and the abiding awe of snowfall. From harvest time suppers in dusty fields and the clean, clean earth of mud-soaked country roads. I am from oceans away and here. I am from America, but not this one. I belong everywhere I've ever been. I am from stacks and stacks of dog-eared books, from abandoned umbrellas and the golden hour. I am from poetry and cello music, from furrowed brows and furrowed fields. I am from kisses by starlight and broken hearts by daylight. I am from knowingness and mystery. I am from the certainness of the sacred. I am from my grandpa's galoshes and gentle shoulder squeezes. I am from the strong hands of my grandmothers, made of sterner stuff than me. I am from big questions and small ones too. And I am from the loveliest of all human acts, 
the soft soul bow of inhabiting this moment with you. How wonderful. What a great way to start the podcast. Thank Thank you you so much. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. Yeah, that's great. Well, there's lots of little hints there (laughs) of where you're from and and what's shaped you. I love the references to your grandparents. Yes. That was that that stuck out to me. Did they play a big role in your life in your childhood or? Yeah, absolutely. So my grandparents on my father's side Mm -hmm. were on a farm just seven miles from where I grew up. So we saw them, if not daily, certainly weekly, and they were very influential in my life. And Mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather on that side passed away in 2003, but he's who I consider to be my hero in life. Mm -hmm. And he had just this very gentle and simple way of living life that I still look to as something that I aspire to in in my own life. And um, so that certainly has been a a tremendous guiding influence for me and Mm. my grandmother as well on that side. She actually just passed away this month. So Mm. I've been spending a lot of time recently thinking about how much they have played a role in who I've become today and Mm. how grateful I am for that influence because I know it's not something that that everyone has Um, and my grandmother on my mom's side also had a very close relationship with her as well and she's still with us thankfully so um, yeah I feel tremendously grateful for everything that that they've taught me and um, the the parts of me that have made me who I am today yeah it shows the power of a grandparent in a child's life doesn't it Mm -hmm. when you think about all that you've been through and then this new baby's born and it's your grandchild, like it's just such a special bond that uh, uh, for better or worse, where we live now in Western society, I think there is a bit of a disconnect between generations that maybe in the past there wasn't because the grandparents lived seven miles down the road or whatever. Um, And it's something I I definitely worry about, you know, for my own kids that that their grandparents, unfortunately, are across an ocean. So they don't have that sort of day-to-day interaction but it sounds like that was a big part of your childhood then yeah absolutely and I think there's something really precious about that role that Mm. they play because it's something that can't quite be filled by anyone else in your life you know parents obviously take on a a different role Mm. even aunts and uncles and and people like that just don't quite fill that same um, that same function in life and Mm. so I think there's something really sacred about that and you know I have memories of playing on my grandparents' farm and they had these beautiful apple trees in their yard and we used to, my cousins and I, go and and climb those trees and my grandma would always tell us, don't eat too many apples or you'll spoil your supper and and somehow every single time um, we did the same thing. We, you know, climbed all the way up to the top to get the good ones and by the time we came in for supper we were stuffed with those tart little apples. (laughs) Yes. So lots of really sweet memories like that that have been a really fundamental part of my my growing up years and who I've become. Yeah, that's really special. Yeah, obviously my kids are still, um, you know, in primary school. (laughs) But one day if I did have grandchildren, I've often thought, wouldn't it be special to be able to take, like if your grandchild was turning 10 or something, take them on a trip, just you and your grandchild and like feed into them in a way that um, 
that, like you say, no one else has that permission. No one else has that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really I think good. there's something really beautiful about some of those family relationships, even mm-hmm. outside the immediate family unit. And mm-hmm. I've thought about that with my nieces and nephews as well. Mm-hmm. And I did start a little tradition like that, that you mentioned and took my niece on a trip. Uh, she was six at the time. So last summer I took her to the ocean for the first time wow. growing up in North Dakota, obviously a landlocked state. Yep. And so I gave her a choice of a few different places we could visit and mm. she wanted to go see the ocean and it yeah. was just I mean, it was a really really enlightening and very special experience for yeah. me and hopefully for her as well so yeah. something really special oh, I'm there. sure I'm sure it'll be memorable right mm. the first time she saw the ocean yeah. with you that's really cool so just let's let's turn back though because the poems help to I love poetry as you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's given us a really um, I guess I would call it maybe an impressionistic painting. So fill in a little bit more of the detail. Like what sort of things did you enjoy when you were five or six years old, for example? Mm-hmm. What what sort of a child were you? Yeah. Well, I was very quiet and thoughtful as a child mm-hmm. and uh, also very obedient. So I wasn't one to color outside the lines or try to break the rules. And mm-hmm. sometimes when I reflect on my personality and who I was as a child. I wish I would have been more of that renegade child because those were the types of characters that I admired in books. But for me, it just felt more natural to have this kind of quiet, reflective existence, even as a child. Mm -hmm. And I was always very eager to make people around me feel joyful and at peace in some way and I think that was something that when I think back on that time in my life now I can see that in the stories that I hear my parents tell about Mm -hmm. how I was as a child Mm -hmm. and I was also a big reader so certainly books were my way of escapism as they are for many kids I think of Mm -hmm. that age and also loved being outside and that's something that has really stayed with me to this day as well yeah and you kind of hinted there at North Dakota it gets pretty cold in the winter right like but real contrast to summer is that right like yeah it, it gets quite a bit yeah. yeah so winters are are quite frigid you know sub-zero fahrenheit temperatures pretty consistently and i mentioned you know six month winters and that's not really an exaggeration usually mm-hmm. the first snowfall comes around you know october november and doesn't really start to melt until april so wow, yeah. um so it's a long stretch and i think that's part of the reason I love winter so much now is that you either learned to love it and embrace it and find ways to see the joy or else you were going to be miserable six months of the year. Right. So for me, it was an easy choice. Make the best of it. Yeah, definitely. And and so coming up sort of through your you know primary school, young, young age, um, did you have an area or thing that you enjoyed? It sounds like reading and writing was your that was your thing or or yeah just describe us describe yourself for us yeah yeah definitely reading and writing I remember when I got my first journal I was in fourth grade and I can still see it in my mind it was this little pink journal it had a a cat ballerina on the front and a little lock which to me made it a real journal because I could actually you know create this combination so it would lock and no one else could see it I had all kinds of yeah (laughs) deep fourth grade thoughts that went in that journal so so I think that was what really um, cemented my my process of reflecting on mm-hmm. what I was seeing happen in the world around me. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I was maybe different than most kids in that way where I was very much an observer. So even, mm-hmm. you know, if I were to read read back some of those journal entries from those early years now, 
it was quite quite interesting i think to see a lot of gratitude and just noticing little things you know mm-hmm. certainly in a childlike way but that was very present i think even even as a kid mm-hmm. and there's a sensitivity that comes along with that mm-hmm. i think that's something that perhaps my parents especially my mom struggled with how exactly to address that that i seemed to feel very deeply and be impacted by what others were thinking and feeling and, right. and really take that on in, in a deep way. Mm. Oh, that's good. Well, it's always interesting to just trace a person's character and shape, you know, and, and of course, nature versus nurture. You know, it sounds like yeah. quite a lot for you is sort of coming out from who you were just mm-hmm. naturally, yeah. whether you'd been born in a beach, you know, or in a snowy place, yeah. <laughs> maybe it would have been the same. Yeah. So coming through high school and things like I know you're studying organizational psychology now, were there was this, you know, how do people interact? How do we make decisions? Like, was that something even in your high school years that was interesting to you or? It was, but probably not in the same way that it is to me now. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it was born around that time from feeling different myself and you know a bit of a a black sheep in my family and as much as I appreciate now the way that I grew up and being raised on a farm I think there were a lot of things about that upbringing that at the time I felt like just didn't fit me you know I had this desire to spread my wings and see other places and travel and perhaps part of that came from books and knowing there was this big world out there that Mm. I really wanted to explore and to experience in a different way. Mm. So I think that's, that's perhaps where some of the first seedlings of that started is that, that feeling different and noticing how other people interacted and what other experiences Mm -hmm. um, were like or could possibly be like. Yeah. yeah. So was it quite a small town or was it, you know, a, movie type of scene of its small town with farms around and Absolutely. getting the bus to school. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. quite idyllic in that sense. And mm-hmm. I certainly have more appreciation for it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, the farm I grew up on, we were about 30 miles or so um, from the town where I went to school. Yeah. So we rode the bus. And then once my older brother got his driver's license, he was able to drive us. So um, that made a bit of a difference. But yeah, the town that was closest to us, the population was maybe 50 people. I right. graduated in a class of about 40. So definitely a, a very small setting so to grow everyone up everyone knows everyone. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, potentially what your grandfather did to this person is also known, you know, yes. <laughs> like there's, there's deep, there's deep memory in yeah. towns like that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of association with, you know, family names. Mm-hmm. And if you have siblings who are around your age it's you know you can't go to school without teachers kind of associating your way of being with your siblings and for better or for worse yeah yeah uh, so that's that's definitely the thing where there's there's no secrets in a small town yeah yeah so you get sort of you're in high school did you know then that you wanted like we're talking we're here in new zealand like that's pretty far away (laughs) did you know at that point that you wanted to explore the world that you wanted to get out of the small town environment and I asked that because my father grew up in a small town in California Mm -hmm. and he's told me that for him when he got to the end of high school he was like I'm out of here (laughs) and basically never returned in the same way he went back to visit but you know I'm just curious from yeah what was your 
what was your feeling as you as you approached your high school, the yeah, end of high school? I would say my experience was similar to your dad's right. in that I was quite eager to get out and experience more, and mm. not because I had any resentment towards the way that I grew up or my family. You know, I loved them all dearly and had mm. good relationships and all of that. It was more just that you know, that chomping at the bit a little bit to see what else was out there. Mm -hmm. And as far as traveling the world, I think at that time, I didn't really even have a sense that that was a possibility. To me, spreading my wings looked like going to Minnesota, which is where I got my undergraduate degree and, you know, visiting other states. That was really the the breadth of my imagination at that point. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until... I started to experience more of the world and meet other people that I think my sense of possibility really broadened even further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It it very often is what you know is what you know and yeah. until you're exposed to other people and other ways of doing things you can you can stay a little bit trapped in, yeah. in your own paradigm. So what did you end up studying? Let's move through like university years. What sure. were you what were you studying? Yeah, so my bachelor's degree was in social work and sociology. Mm-hmm. And then I also had a, a minor in gerontology because I always really enjoyed being around older people. Right. I think because I'm a bit of an old soul myself, I just always felt really at home with that population. And so mm-hmm. I really wanted to work in, in that realm of social work. And, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So what do they teach you in gerontology? <laughs> is there a course? <laughs> I mean, what 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 is the main topics that you're learning about yeah so some of it was looking at at that time what was shifting in terms of population dynamics so as the baby boomers were aging um, looking at what were some of the things that we could expect and what would the impacts be on nursing homes for Mm -hmm. example and how would that change career opportunities for people so some of it was kind of the you know the future of aging if you will and what that might look like Mm -hmm. and then there were also pieces about you know socializing so how does socializing look different Mm -hmm. as you age and what are some of the the physical challenges that can contribute to mental health issues like depression and things like that so Mm -hmm. um, it was quite a because it was just a a minor at that point it wasn't even an option to get a a major or a degree in gerontology it was really just my way of more deeply exploring something I was really interested in Mm. yeah it's it's a fascinating area, isn't it? Because uh, for better or worse, our society often gets like, okay, you've retired, boom, completely different. Yeah. You know, you're not working anymore. It's here's your watch, and and the reality is that it can be a difficult transition for people to go from having worked for forty years or yeah. whatever to what do I do? What, yeah, do I have value? How how do I contribute? And I think if we look at so many of the things that we know now about what makes us happy and what makes us feel fulfilled as mm-hmm. human beings, so much of the psychology research points to purpose and meaning and relationships. And so much of that is taken away, I think, when retirement happens. Mm-hmm. So some of those connections that were perhaps forged at work maybe fall away. Certainly, you know, sense of purpose and meaning can be altered significantly. And so when we look at rates of depression and things like that amongst people who are 65 and older, I think where that that's where a lot of that comes from. But yeah. I think it's also going to shift significantly as the way that we look at work changes as well, where mm-hmm. it won't be 
I would estimate, this is just my prediction that, you know, as my generation, for example, comes to what we now call retirement age, that we won't approach it in the same traditional way, that we've come to look at work more as sort of a a lifelong endeavor. And we want to be doing things that mean something to us throughout the span of a life and not just, you know, go put in eight hours or a designated amount of time Mm. um, doing something that doesn't necessarily fill that that deeper meaning for us. Mm. But it's a good reminder for people, I think, because those first two months, three months when you've retired they're going to be fantastic because you're going to go golf every day if you want to. You're going to drive around and see things that you've never been able to see. But at the end of that two or three months, it's going to, I imagine it's going to be like, okay, well, what day is it? Is it a Wednesday or a Saturday? And and anyway, the point is the routines would get totally thrown out, which is one of the reasons I'm doing the podcast in preparation of Ah, one day retiring, right? Because this is something I could continue on for a very long time, potentially, if it if I keep enjoying it (laughs) but having a diverse range of interests you know before you hit the retirement date I think that would be a real strategy to make sure that it wasn't such a huge transition yeah I think that's a brilliant way of looking at it and Mm -hmm. and really I think what you said is such a great reminder that ultimately it's up to all of us to create our own lives and I think sometimes we forget that we're not victims of circumstance that, you know, whether it's retirement or the way our day-to-day life looks right now, that we are the ones who can be the architects of what that life Mm. looks like. And so it's not as if someone else is taking away our purpose or our fulfillment or our joy or gratitude. Mm. Those are all things that we have the ability to cultivate ourselves. And I think the more agency that we feel in that the happier we'll be and there's some research that would that would suggest that's true as well Mm. well it just it it makes sense doesn't it you know but i think you're right sometimes we feel like there's no agency that 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 it's not my responsibility that somehow will be handed it on a plate and the reality is as we know usually there's a lot of hard work or a lot of effort to get to something. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really good. So you get to the end of that undergraduate study. Um, did you know what you wanted to do next or, um, yeah, what happened? What happened next? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I actually did get a job pretty much right out of university mm-hmm. as a social worker in a nursing home and really enjoyed that because it was exactly what I was hoping to do mm-hmm. with my degree. But I found that, I got disillusioned with it rather quickly because as much as I enjoyed the one-to-one interaction, there was also this this itch that I had to have an impact on a broader scale. And that's what eventually led me to the leadership um, world and trying to get more in into that realm because I felt like it was an area where I could have a larger sphere of influence and that was something that really started to become important to me so Mm -hmm. um so after i kind of started out in the the nursing home social work area i moved across the country to cleveland ohio Mm -hmm. and started working there for a healthcare consulting company and initially was still doing that one-to-one um, work with individuals who were 65 or older, typically low income and had some difficult life circumstances. And we were trying to help them get mm. signed up for certain government programs and things like that that could provide some additional assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, but after just about six months there, there was a leadership opportunity that came along. And 
I didn't even really have the the presence of mind at that time to see myself in that kind of a role, but through the encouragement of my my boss at the time and some of the other people who were around me, I decided to apply and ended up getting that position and that was the start of my leadership journey, which I think really mm. transformed my career in a lot of ways. Right. Interesting. So, um what do you think it is like I, I love it when people can't see themselves in a position and it takes someone else outside helping them to go, no, no, you should apply for it. Like, what was it, that person who helped you to to do that? Yeah, tell, tell me about them a little bit. What do you think that they, yeah, what was their approach or their attitude? Was it consistent that they looked for opportunities for other people or? Mm, yeah, so, um the, the person who encouraged me, she actually is still a very good friend of mine. Um, and so I think I would say that she certainly does see that in other people as well. But also some of it was I was a, a good technician, if you will. I was good at the mechanics of the job, but also had, um, I would say, a bit of a um, a sort of an even keeled approach to things. So when you're doing direct social work in that in that way and working one on one with people, especially when it's over the phone and a high volume and people are in mm. often difficult situations, it can become stressful relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. But I think um, just maintaining enough of a sort of calm and professional demeanor, but still coupled with compassion, mm-hmm. was something that um, that she really saw potential in. Mm. So I'm. I'm extremely grateful that she was able to recognize that and also that she had cultivated a relationship with me in a way that made me really eager to listen to her and and actually take that advice and, and decide to go for it. That's great. So what's her name? Her name is Joy. Joy. Well, well done, Joy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully she'll listen to this. Yes. Because I love to call out people who played that role yeah. as an encouragement to me who around me could I be playing that role for (laughs) you know what I mean like because I don't want to just leave it there for everybody who's listening I mean where are the opportunities that you see for someone who can't see it in themselves absolutely how can you help them to to grow in that way I think it's really that's if we give nothing else back in our lives like if we can help other people on their journeys then we've accomplished something, right? I wholeheartedly agree. And I think we actually underestimate the impact that that can have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see so many stories of people who talk about, oh, you know, my second grade teacher told me I was a good writer and that's why I'm a writer today. And I think it's, it's not often that we actually take the time to reflect on those individual people in our lives who have really unfurled this whole chain of events that mm. has led us to where we are. So mm. hopefully Joy will listen to this and and know what an impact just that, you know, that one little bit of encouragement had in in many ways getting me where I am today. And there yeah. were, you know, many other people along the way as well. But yeah. it's, I think, quite a powerful reminder of, of just how impactful that can be. Definitely. Well, Joy, she's here in New Zealand now. (laughs) There you go. So, um, and the other word that strikes me that we haven't said yet, but I have to say it is empathy. Mm -hmm. You know, that that being empathetic and and kind of seeing the world through other people's eyes and therefore seeing their potential. I think that has a lot a lot to be said for it as well. So you, you take on this first role and just describe, I guess, the first 
the first steps that you took in that leadership role. But then also, I'm really curious about what you're studying now mm -hmm. and the idea of organizations yes. and psychology. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to dive deep into that for a while. And also, I want to get to Unchatter. So yes. um, just kind of bring us up, I guess, to how you got into what you're doing today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So during those first few months in a leadership role, I was I was obviously quite young at that time. And one of my personality traits that has at times served me well and other times really tripped me up is that I am quite a perfectionist and it's very important to me to do things extremely well. Mm -hmm. And so I think at that time I felt a bit unprepared. It was something I hadn't expected really in the first place. And so to find myself in that position where I was supervising people who had been peers, most of whom were older than I was, I thought, my goodness, I really need to to figure out how to do this the right way. Right. And so I started diving into books and podcasts weren't really a thing at that time, but just searching for all the information I could find. Mm -hmm. um, really grabbed on to um, cultivating relationships with people that I considered to be mentors in the leadership space and just really became a sponge and also started experimenting with a lot of different things. So mm. the whole positive psychology field was really just sort of becoming a, a thing at that time. So I was reading a lot of those books and a lot of books about business leadership. So Malcolm Gladwell was one mm. of my favorites, of course, Stephen Covey. So all of those kind mm. of classic business leadership books, I just devoured those and then started getting more into the positive psychology realm as well. Mm -hmm. And I think the consequence of that was was that not only did I learn a, a lot about leadership, but I learned a lot about self-leadership and how to cultivate self-awareness and learn more about myself in ways that would ultimately help me interact and connect more meaningfully with other people. Right. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. It's it because there's so much out there that that we don't know, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I agree with you. If you can take a bit of time and just go a bit deeper into some of those principles. It has huge impact. Yeah. yeah. So that's what sort of got you into thinking about studying again and, yeah. you know, I want to learn more, I want to learn more. Or Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I actually went back and got my master's degree while I was still working. Mm -hmm. And I got my master's in public administration because I again, thinking from sort of that holistic perspective, I thought, oh, maybe I want to be in politics and actually influence things at a more macro level even than, than where I was. So mm -hmm. that seems to have been a trend, I think, during my early career is of really thinking about how can I have a larger footprint in terms of impacting people in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, and then as I continued to move up the ladder at that organization, obviously had you know more and more responsibility and was very fortunate to have an excellent boss who gave me a lot of autonomy and that combined with everything that I was reading and what I had studied in my master's program led me to start doing a lot of experimentation in what I didn't realize at the time was actually organizational psychology. Okay. So there were things I was I was reading about in research articles and books that I was reading and just ideas that I had, you know, kind of percolating on my own as well and I thought, "Oh, you know, how can I 
take this environment that is at my fingertips for these, you know, hundred or so people who are under my leadership and make this a really joyful and meaningful space. Mm -hmm. And this image I had in my mind was that, you know, when someone's alarm clock went off in the morning, I wanted them to think, oh yes, I get to go to work today. Mm -hmm. And understanding that of course there's, there's always the, you know, kind of yucky administrative stuff and the elements of our jobs that no matter how joyful it is that we don't necessarily like. So understanding that sort of part and parcel of the work that we do, but in the larger scheme of things, how could we really make this a joyful place for people to be? And so there were different initiatives that I implemented, also had a dynamite leadership team who really helped me push a lot of those things through, and then did a lot of tracking along with it to see, did it bear out in the in the results in terms of you know, productivity and revenue, which is, of course, what the executives were really interested in, but also some of the, the softer things like engagement and just what was the feeling you know when you walked Mm -hmm. through our our wing of the building what did it feel like were people happy to be there and that became such a driving force to really create this um this incubator of happiness Mm -hmm. if you will yeah that's great so just reflecting back on that time what would you say were some of the successful experiments and what was the direct results that that came out of them yeah so Probably my favorite, if I if I had to choose, would be a gratitude initiative that I started. And this was originally born from um, a talk that, it was a TED Talk actually, by a psychologist named Sean Acor, and it's called The Happy Secret to Better Work. Okay. And I actually showed the, the video in one of my team meetings, and he talks about how we really have it backwards when we think about the success of organizations. So we often think, oh, you know, if, if we can get people to achieve their goals, they'll be happy and have a sense of fulfillment at work, hmm. when actually it's the opposite. If we can make them feel happy and fulfilled, that's ultimately what breeds success. And I loved that idea. It made such perfect sense to me. And so what we know based on the research and what I knew even from my own practice is that part of what lends itself to happiness is gratitude. And so I started this this initiative called 21 Days of Gratitude, where each day a different team came into my office and we just had a stand-up meeting and everyone talked about one thing that they were grateful for. And it could be something personal, it could be something professional, mm-hmm. it was up to them what, what it was that they wanted to share. And initially it was really about the gratitude, but as we looked at the impact that it had, it became so much more than that. It was, I think for me as... I was a director at that time and you know with you know a hundred plus people it was really important to me to know something personal about everyone and to have a sense that I was familiar with them and what was important to them, but that's difficult to do with that number of people. And so it was a way for me to hear little snippets of what was happening in people's lives Mm -hmm. and to be able to use that as a reference point in connecting with them. So it was really powerful in that way. And I think the other perhaps more more obvious output was that it really did start to do what the research says it will do which is that it rewires people's brains to scan for the positive so i'll just share one little story that always stood out to me as sort of the the shining example of why it was a a success um so one morning we were, were having our good things meeting and one of our associates comes in and she's kind of, you know, huffing and puffing and a little bit late and sort of flustered. And we finally get around to her and she's like, you know, 
I had the worst morning ever. It was raining outside and I got a flat tire and it just seemed like one of those days where everything was going wrong. And she's like, as I sat there waiting for my dad to come and and help fix my flat tire, I thought, oh gosh, and now I have this good things meeting when I get into work and what am I going to share when, you know, I'm having this miserable morning. And she said, all of a sudden, I thought of all the things that I had to be grateful for in this situation, that I had a car that could even get a flat tire, that I had a job that I was trying to get to, that I had bosses and a team who would be understanding that you know, I, I'm provided for and I had someone who could actually come and help me. And she's like, all of a sudden, you know, I just, I had this burst of happiness at all these things that were so wonderful about my life and all because of that flat tire. Mm. And so that's ultimately what gratitude is about is teaching us to scan our environment for those things that are going right, even though that's not necessarily our natural state of being. Yeah, so it makes yeah. sense. So an attitude of gratefulness absolutely is something that can be cultivated yes. rather than one off. So yeah. oh that's that's nice. Yes. But actually looking for the positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much there. Um I think even for me, um, just this past weekend, TEDx Christchurch was on. Yes. So I was volunteering there, and I was kind of at the front, like, welcoming people, mm. you know. Welcome to TEDx. Good to see you. Good morning. Welcome. Come on this way. Yeah. And But the way that I greeted, like, you could see the faces changing as you smiled, yeah. as you welcomed them, you know. And it was just this realization that very often I forget this, and there's real power in our body language and how we treat people and how often we smile, you know, and actually if you have the attitude of being welcoming all the time, not just because you're there at the front, you know, welcoming people to an event, it actually, you know, it's, it's like something that can be trained and you can learn. And it was just amazing seeing like literally hundreds of people and they would be walking towards me, maybe not smiling or anything. And you just, go hi welcome to Teta. you know and their attitude back would be a similar you know gratitude joyful type of attitude it's that yeah it's powerful stuff yeah there's Mm. actually um there's a a bit from the research that's really interesting around that where we have something called mirror neurons and it's basically what makes us as human beings mimic the people who are around us right and obviously with long-term connections it has even more impact but even in the short term you know we see this from the time that we're babies you know Mm. that's why we we smile and you know make googly eyes at babies because they're connecting with us and they're they're Mm. mirroring what it is that that we do and Um, When Toni Morrison passed away recently, I saw an article where she had done an interview with Oprah, I believe, years and years ago, and she was talking about children, and she said the most important thing with a child that they look for in you is do you light up when they walk in the room? Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was such a beautiful and simple way of framing it, and at the same time, I thought, but it's not just children. Mm. We all want that. You know, think of how amazing it feels when you walk into a room or you pass someone or, you know, you walk into a, a building or an event and someone has that, you know, almost entire body joy of seeing you. And mm. it's just such an incredible feeling. And we have an opportunity to to do that and gift that to people in every single interaction that we have. Yeah. 
which of course with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. <laughs> yes. So the encouragement to the listener is how are we interacting with the people in our lives? Yes. <laughs> yeah, but it's so it's so true and you know, we know it, but we it's very it's easy to forget, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's a great great example. I love that attitude of gratefulness. Mm-hmm. It's something we try to encourage with our children, you know, like having dinner. Like, what's, let's go around the table. What's one thing that happened today that you're grateful for? Yes, and just trying that. to get them to verbalize, well, you know, I read a book or this, I played a game or whatever it is. But that starts that, doesn't it? That cultivation of a grateful attitude. Yeah, and I think in that sense, like what you're doing with your children, it's also a lens into someone's way of being and mm. seeing what's important to them because the things that one person might be grateful for and pick up on in their environment might be completely different than someone else's. Mm. And so I think that's that's the other way that it's a really beautiful connector is it shows you what's important to someone. Mm-hmm. And, and like you say, it deepens the relationship with yes. the people who are sharing about, I just got a new dog and it's my pet. And all of a sudden you've got a connection point, right? Like, yes. hey, how's your dog doing? And, you know, that's really good. And I think as well, um, we're riffing on this quite a lot. We'll move on in a minute, but I, I like to go. If, if it's there, we go there. Um, my great-grandfather, mm-hmm. his name was Robert Conard. And when he was about 65, he went blind. And he nev- the, the story, the family story goes, I, I wasn't born yet, the family story goes that he didn't complain about this awful thing that had happened to him. He had somehow nurtured through his life the attitude that he would be grateful for whatever circumstance mm. he was in. So, like, if I lost my sight, I'm honestly, I would probably be complaining. <laughs> yeah. But he had this attitude of, um, well, I'll learn to walk with a cane. I'll, I'll continue with my life. And I think... But the the point is, I think he had cultivated an attitude of gratefulness. You know, that moment wasn't a nothing. It, it had been a lifetime to build to that. Yeah. And so for each of us, it, that challenge is there, I think, as well. Absolutely. And yeah. I think it gets back to what we were saying about agency and this idea that ultimately we all have the ability to cultivate something like that. And Mm. there's something in the psychology research called the happiness set point that basically says, you know, we all sort of have this, this equilibrium of happiness that we're born with. That's genetic, if you will. And that just is what it is. But the larger part of our happiness and our sense of well-being is something that we can influence, whether it's through creating an environment that makes us joyful or practicing gratitude, all those kinds of things. There's so much that's in our control in terms mm. of creating a life and a mindset that ultimately is uh, you know, a servant to us in, instead of a master. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So you're working and you're diving deep and you're studying you get your masters um maybe just bring us up to speed like we're here in new zealand (laughs) what happened next how did you end up deciding i want to really study this yeah yeah absolutely so i got to a point in that organization where 
I knew there wasn't much further I could go and I was quite ambitious and wanted to keep moving up the ladder. And so an opportunity came along to shift to another um, healthcare organization that was much larger, um, one of the largest uh, for-profit healthcare organizations in the U.S. And it was uh, an executive position. So I was able to move into a vice president role there. And to me, it really aligned with my goals at that time of, again, expanding that sphere of influence and being able to take some of these initiatives and things that I had implemented and put into practice in one organization and saying, okay, are they going to translate to another larger environment Mm -hmm. in um, quite a a different setting? And so it was a really exciting time, I think, to be able to to take some of those concepts and see what's the transferability here, because Mm -hmm. I think often that's the ultimate test of a concept is to see, can it live outside this little incubator that Mm -hmm. you created it in? So yeah. So I shifted to that organization and um, was there for a little over three years and really appreciated my time there. But it also is what ultimately moved me in the direction of stepping away from the corporate world. And I think operating in an organization of that size really brought into focus what it was about leadership that I enjoyed and having some of those aspects taken away in a sense in a much larger setting mm-hmm. um, really brought that into into light in a different way. So I got to a place where I knew I wanted to make a shift because when I thought, oh, you know, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if I work my way up to, you know, CEO or whatever position that I ultimately want to get to in this type of environment, is that going to feel like a good use of my years and nothing against that organization. Like I had wonderful experiences there, but ultimately I thought, no, there's something else in me that needs to make its way into the world. Mm -hmm. And I had also started traveling more at that time while I was, I was still working. So had spent some time in Europe, had gone to Bali. And I think anytime you travel and you get yourself outside of your day-to-day environment, you just can't help but really have your your mind and your imagination stretched. And so those experiences and meeting people who had done a lot of traveling and were just doing really unique and cool things in the world Mm -hmm. got my gears turning. And so I started to work out whether it was possible for me to leave the corporate world and take some time off just to explore and to travel and to think about what it was that I really wanted to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that. The end of 2017, I left that organization, and my intent was to take all of 2018 to just travel and do some of this exploration. So mm-hmm. I did the, uh, you know, I feel like it's kind of becoming cliched now, but you know, sold my house and my car and all my stuff, and and just hit the road and and did some traveling. And just a few months into that, I started having this little you know, percolation of an idea of, oh, you know, I've always wanted to get my PhD. Maybe now is a good time to start thinking about that. And I had known I wanted to get my PhD since I was young. It's, I've always loved school, loved study, and the more I can learn, the better. So, Mm -hmm. so I just started doing a bit of research on different programs that were out there and really preferred to go international if I could just to kind of get that, that different scope of experience. 
And one of my good friends in the U.S. who is also getting her Ph.D. said, if there's one piece of advice I could give you, it would be to look for a researcher who's doing work in an area that you're interested in rather than just looking at the program. Mm. And so that was really the, the lens that I applied as I was doing my search and, and happened to find someone here in New Zealand who was doing some really interesting stuff in the organizational psychology mm. space. And so just sent a, you know, an exploratory email and had put a few feelers out elsewhere as well and got a really lovely response from her. So I decided to, to go ahead and apply. And I actually hadn't even heard back when I thought, you know what, I'll just take a trip to New Zealand to see if I even like it enough right. to move there if, if by chance I do get in. So I booked a trip to come last May, May of 2018. Mm-hmm. And about a week before I got on the plane, I got my acceptance letter. Mm. So I came to New Zealand to visit knowing that it was an option for me to actually move here. Mm-hmm. And I would say within about two to three days of being here in Christchurch, I was quite certain that this was the place that I was meant to be for the next step of my journey. So wow. I moved here in August of last year, so almost exactly a year ago. Wow. And that realization, you know, two or three days here, do you remember it as a point in time when you made a decision or or was it sort of a I don't know a growing realization this is it yeah I think it was a bit more of a growing realization but I do remember a moment where I was at this really lovely little Airbnb here in Christchurch and just doing some journaling and thinking about everything and trying to imagine myself kind of going about daily life in Christchurch and thinking, oh, you know, where might I go to get my groceries? And mm-hmm. and where would I go if I wanted to, you know, go on a walk or a good hike? And I think it was that idea of placing myself in the setting and thinking, oh, yeah, this, this feels right. Mm-hmm. And I think for so much of my life, I have made decisions based on concrete data. And I'm quite... Um, cerebral in that way sometimes in terms of wanting to have all of the evidence that says yes this is a good decision because of x (laughs) y and z Mm -hmm. whereas with coming here i knew it was a good decision for very logical reasons as well but it was more of a feeling where Mm. i trusted my intuition and i think that was the the first step of many of really following that that gut instinct and certainly it's it's led me to a good place yeah oh that's great i loved hearing these uh, you know that sort of story it's it's really cool to hear how people make decisions and yeah. what brings them to a place um it's fascinating so what have you been what have you been assisting with researching and studying and what are you doing your own research into now? Yeah, so my thesis is centered around looking at belonging and connection in organizations. Mm-hmm. And part of my interest around this is that Um, I'm interested in belonging as a concept in general and without getting, you know, too neck deep into the, into the research, there was what is called the the theory or the hypothesis of belongingness. And that really came to the forefront in 1995 with two psychologists, um, Baumeister and Leary, who essentially came up with this, this idea that almost everything we do as a human being is ultimately driven by our need to belong and to connect with other human beings. Mm. And so I loved that idea, not only because it bears out in the research, but also because it resonated with me personally. And I thought, yes, you know, that is, mm. that is what makes life meaningful. When I think about when I've been unhappy and when I've been 
really unhappy. Um, both sides of the coin, happiness, unhappiness, both times they were really tied to either connection or the lack thereof. Mm. But at the same time, considering some of my experiences in the corporate world and in the workplace, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fascinating to take that lens of belongingness and apply it to the workplace? And when I started to do some digging, found that there wasn't really much research done in that space, which um, sometimes can be a bit of a challenge, but it also suggests that it's an area that's really ripe mm. for, for digging into. Maybe opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really good. I love it when this happens on podcasts, but I just interviewed someone named David Clifford mm -hmm. on on Monday and we're recording this on a Thursday so it's really fresh for me but in that podcast we um, which I uploaded yesterday morning so <laughs> I turned it around really quick but the 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 thing that struck me about what we talked about because he's talking about education mm -hmm. and schools and what might schools of the future look like but we ended up talking about how important for a child growing up the foundation of feeling like they belong and a sense of identity is far more important than learning ABC, yes. one, two, three, you know, and that if you can gift a child a sense of belonging, then they're probably going to do pretty well. Yeah. Um, and that, that as a, you know, a guardian or a parent or, or someone looking after children, that's what you really need to be giving is you belong. Yes. You are part of this. And that, that then for, he was feeling then forms the foundation for, whatever it is that they study. Um, Absolutely. But you've got to get that stuff right. And then we, we talked a lot about empathy and sort of, you know, not focusing on the traditional academic subjects, but focusing more on love and yes. being able to express your feelings, you know, <laughs> things that are not traditional class subjects. So um, it's just interesting that, that the word belonging really resonates across both of these interviews. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's absolutely critical to think about how that concept of belongingness mm -hmm. applies in schools as well. Because even if if you go back and consider what are some of the memories that stand out to you the most as a child that were really identity forming, often they did have to do with either inclusion or exclusion if you mm -hmm. really dig down to the root of it. And I think that's often what we see play out, not just in the workplace, but in our personal lives as well, that we carry these stories of who we are as individuals mm. based on those things that happened to us when we were very young that are very deeply tied to the types of relationships that we either had or didn't have and what those dynamics look like. So I think the more we can address that with children, mm -hmm. the fewer issues that we'll see as we become adults and, and have those struggles. Yeah, that's really good. So the, the research that you're doing, you said there's not really that much that's been done. So how do you go about doing um, research in that area if, if nobody's really looked at it before? <laughs> yeah, so most of my literature review is really focused on sort of the corollary aspects of belongingness. So of course, I'm looking at belongingness as a general construct um, mm -hmm. not just in the workplace, but what does it look like in social groups and things like that. But there is a lot of organizational behavior research around things that are tied to belongingness just in less obvious ways. So actually one of my um, advisors in my thesis is has done a lot of work around loneliness in the uh -huh. workplace. Right. So it's a very, very, um, I think, useful sister to belonging. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been really wonderful to learn from her and see some of the work that she's done on 
loneliness and has even developed a scale to measure loneliness at the in the workplace. So um, looking at things like that and then also there of course is a lot about relationships at work and leadership styles and how that can impact things mm-hmm. and more and more about emotions at work because just as you were saying with education mm-hmm. i think we're coming to a much greater understanding of just how much that matters and mm-hmm. we're starting to see this shift where before there was a bit of a silo when it came to work it's like you know you you kind of drop everything at the door and now you you step through you know, through the doors of your workplace and you're this other person, you're Mm. kind of a, you know, a robot in a way, and you're sort of expected to not have too much emotion. Whereas now I think we have a much more holistic view of ourselves as human beings and we want to be who we are Mm -hmm. in every sphere of our lives, Mm. including at work and perhaps even especially at work. Yeah, I agree completely. And I actually think there's, it's interesting because people often say, oh, how's your work-life balance going? Mm. But if you if you think about that, that's implying that one of them is not good and the other is good. Like yes. that, that work is just stuff that you get through in order to have a life and that the balancing is kind of the negative and the positive. And, but I think, in fact, um, I've stopped using the term sort of work-life balance and talked more about work-life integration. Yes. Because if you can integrate so that your life, you know, the positive stuff, is actually somehow a part of your work, then, I mean, it's cliche, but I guess you'll never work a day in your life, right? Yeah. If you're actually passionate about what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think you're you're spot on that the whole idea of work-life balance is becoming a bit of an antiquated term. Mm. It doesn't really make sense to look at it in that capacity any longer when especially with technology and the degree to which we're constantly connected to work, it really has shifted, I think, the extent to which those worlds bleed over into each other. And also as we're seeing what a difference relationships in the workplace make. So, you know, when we have a boss or colleagues who we feel like know a bit about who we are and respect Mm. us as human beings, um, I think one of the one of the things that really stood out to me very early on in my leadership days was reading a poll. I think it was done by Gallup, actually. And they said the the number one factor that predicted happiness at work was whether or not someone had a best friend at work. And that really stood out to me because I think often workplaces are focusing on so many other things. You know, mm. you, you see a lot of these companies like have, you know, slides in the workplace and, you know, snack bars and all these perks that sound really cool. But at the end of the day, how much do they really influence our happiness? Not that much. It's about, you know, when you go to work, is there someone that you're looking forward to seeing who you feel like, you know, they have your back, they know something about mm. you, that you're cared about, respected, and that you're seen for who you are, not just as an employee, but as a person. I think, is it Brené Brown, I'm pretty sure, talks a lot about this and hardwired for relationship, you know, that that's that's kind of fundamentally who we are. It is about relationship. And so if you're if you're divorcing it and well, I just come here to work on the spreadsheet (laughs) and these numbers have to add up to one point four seven, you know, um, that's that's the danger, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So what would be um, some of your tips, I guess, for encouraging belonging at at work Mm. Um, apart from the attitude of gratefulness which I really liked but is there anything that's sort of emerging from your research that it's probably still early days but is there is there things that 
yeah, that are would be helpful for people who are listening? Yeah, great question. I would say ask me in a year because mm-hmm. I'll have some some data around it then. So I'll just talk briefly about sort of what my approach will be to answering that exact question. Great. So ultimately what I want to do is create a model of belongingness that says, what are some of the precursors to belongingness? So if we say that creating a culture of belonging is ultimately what we're after as a workplace. What are some of the things we can put in place, whether it's uh, leadership styles, looking at um, things like the the structural elements of an organization. So are they hierarchical or do they have more of a, a flat structure? Um, what are the, the sort of organizing features of a company? And, and by that, I mean like the nuts and bolts of sort of day-to-day mm. operating procedures. So what does it look like when a a new employee comes on board what does that process look like um, what happens when a problem comes up at work how how do they go about problem solving so all of those sort of operational factors how do those play into belongingness mm-hmm. and then also looking at individual factors so is there something outside of anything an organization can do about you or me as an individual that makes us more or less likely to find a sense of belongingness in an organization and how can companies potentially look at that as they're even screening employees and placing them on certain teams and making sure that they're put in an environment where they'll function best Mm. so that's sort of the initial stage is saying you know let's dig in and and figure out what what those precursors to belongingness are Mm -hmm. and then on the other side once we have a culture of belongingness what happens on the other side of it? So what are some of the positive outcomes, the tangible things like, is there an impact on productivity or engagement or tenure or even revenue, all the things that organizations are really looking at as mm. metrics, metrics of success, but also giving some heed to the potential negative outcomes. So there is a bit of research on things like good soldier syndrome. So this idea that you can almost have too much belonging in an organization where your loyalty to a team or the organization sort of takes over, you know, your loyalty to yourself or your sense of well-being and your boundaries and things of that nature. Mm. So so that's sort of looking at the the other side, what are some of the outcomes of mm. belongingness? Which I imagine could be an issue for certain type of organizations which are social service type organizations where you're you're doing a mission or a, a amazing work for a particular group that's really needy yes. and your identity could become so associated with that, right? That, yeah. That, yeah. Oh, that's really good. Well, we'll just have to do another podcast when you're done. <laughs> Come back on and we'll we'll see where you got to. But it's good to know the process that you're following. To Yeah. You know. And I will say, you know, just without any of the, the data yet to back it up, I think just as a you know, as a former employee and as a human being, to mm-hmm. me, one of the most important things that any organization could do is to really create that focus on relationship. Because, you know, as as you alluded to with the, the Brene Brown um, phrase, hardwired for relationship, mm-hmm. that that's so true. And when I consider what my own experiences and organizations have been, what made me feel like I was valued and really um, caused that sense of loyalty was when, you know, I had a boss who was very deeply invested in my success. Mm -hmm. I had a team around me that I knew on a, a personal level, you know, not not crossing any boundaries, but that, you know, I, I knew what their families were like. I knew the things that were important to them. And I think 
sometimes we're so worried about political correctness and those kinds of things that that we sort of um, gloss over the fact that that's ultimately what makes us who we are. And the more we can recognize those things in other people, mm. ultimately, the closer it, it brings us together and the more likely we are to work on things that actually matter together. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. And the other thing, we're riffing off of each other's thoughts here a lot, but it's good. It's a good riffing because I'm just thinking when I went to university and I studied law and other things, you know, there wasn't really a class about empathy relationship the importance of communication sure i learned quite a few facts but the 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 point i'm making is that if we're saying that relationship is really key then what are we teaching the next generation about communication about openness about valuing diversity you know like surely these should be fundamentally you know the the first year class should be about how do we relate with each other? Yes. You know, different personality types, like that type of thing. I didn't learn until, you know, relatively recently, yeah. you know, but if you go into your boss's office and they are, uh, you know, a different personality to you, you need to know, you need to have the skills to be able to, um, you know, communicate effectively in a way that resonates with them so yeah and I think ultimately that's what's really going to distinguish organizations and even individuals from one another in the future because you know as we look at AI and robotics and all of these things the more technical aspects of the work that we do regardless of the field we'll start to obviously see a lot more automation and we've already seen that start to play out so Mm -hmm. computers will will be able to do a lot of the thinking for us but what we can't replace is that human connection and relationship mm-hmm. building. And so I think organizations and people who really do that well and place the emphasis on that will really be a leg up. Mm-hmm. But I think beyond that, you know, beyond looking at sort of the, you know, the the positive outcomes of it, to me, it's also about who is it that you want to be mm-hmm. in life? And do you want to be someone who leaves someone feeling a little bit lighter and brighter because of the interaction that they had with you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like no matter what space you're in, there's no more beautiful legacy you can leave than that. Mm. Which echoes what we talked about before, the welcoming and the smiles and, you know, the the attitude of gratefulness, which which then has profound impacts on others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really great. So I'd love to chat a little bit about Unchatter. (laughs) So um, what is it? How did it start? Um, And we've had conversations before, so um, I kind of know, but I'd love for the listeners to understand what it is and also how they can get involved if they're interested. Yeah, sure. So I guess in its simplest form, Unchatter is an organization that is focused on bringing meaningful connection into the world. And that happens in a couple different ways. So I do work with organizations and actually use some of the research and some of the work that I'm doing in my thesis to help them figure out how to have cultures and teams that ultimately breed more belongingness and connection and have more positive outcomes as a result. Um, I think the more public face of Unchatter is the events that we run. So the first one was in February here in Christchurch, and we've had one every month since then. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been consistently selling out ever since we had the first one and now have done a few in Wellington, and we'll actually do the first one in Auckland um, in September. Mm-hmm. So um, at those events, it's really about 
bringing together people who are longing to have those deeper conversations, but maybe aren't quite sure how to get there. And I would argue that just about every human being out there has that longing. We all do want to connect at a deeper level. We don't really want to be walking around talking about, you know, weather and sports and, you know, all these sort of surface level things that we spend most of our time talking about. And yet we're just not quite sure how to get there. So the Unchatter events are really designed to not only create a container during the event where you can go to those spaces, but also to get some tools that you can take away Mm -hmm. and have more meaningful conversations in your everyday life as well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and a a big shout out to Exchange and Preston because I think you're hosting them there in Christchurch, aren't you? And um, as you know, I started something called Impact Lunches, which is basically addressing the same need that you're talking about, the idea that we can actually get people together in a room and have more, you know, deeper conversations and get past the surface. So how do you cultivate that attitude (laughs) of going a bit deeper with people? Like, what are some of the ways that that you're approaching that, that tricky issue? I think one of the most important things is that we put a lot of emphasis on creating emotional safety. So understanding that anytime you're asking people to be a bit more vulnerable and venture into territory that they're perhaps not accustomed to going in their everyday lives it's critical that you really set the stage for that in a meaningful way. So there's a few things that we do to really um, undergird that sense of safety. One of them is that we have a set of what I call party principles. Mm -hmm. And so it's just some basic rules that get us all on the same page with how we move together through the event. Mm -hmm. There's also a quiet space. So if at any point someone feels a bit overwhelmed by the conversation or just wants to get away, um, they can step into that space. And then perhaps the, the most impactful is that we have a team of connectors. And those are people who are participating in the evening and and really engaged in the exercises. But at the same time, they they sort of have a, a special eye out for anyone who might be feeling uncomfortable or just need a, a conversation buddy or an extra boost to to really help them feel engaged and, mm-hmm. and comfortable in the space. Mm, that's great. So that's helping to facilitate the yes. looking around the room and, and helping. Yeah. 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 And the other thing I would say is that because the events are really guided it's not as if we're just asking people to you know show up and start having deep conversations Mm -hmm. so they've been very thoughtfully curated in terms of even the sequence of exercises that we do so starting with you know a bit more levity doing some just a basic meditation to kind of help people drop into that space and create that energy of of togetherness and Mm -hmm. presence. Um, We also ask people to check their cell phones at the door or leave them at home. So obviously that makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, But I think just moving through some of those stages, if you will, gradually brings people to this place where they can feel safe and comfortable talking about things in mm-hmm. in a deeper way. And it's it's generally in smaller groups as well. So I think that also um, creates a bit more intimacy and that willingness to to really open parts of yourself that you mm. maybe don't in, in everyday life. Mm. And I guess in a way what you're hoping is that you're modeling this attitude of asking a few questions and going a bit deeper with people Therefore, the next day or the next day or the next next day, they might actually go up to a colleague or go up to a friend and, you know, have something that goes a bit 
below the surface. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at the end of every event, I always assign a couple pieces of homework and it's always centered around thinking about some of those interactions that you have on a regular basis that mm-hmm. typically are occupied by small talk and um, really tasking the people who attend to use some of the tools that they learn. There's something called neon quill feathers that is just kind of an easy way of, of remembering some of the, the tools that um, we give them to take away. So using some of those tools in those interactions that they have on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And as with anything, the more we exercise it, the easier it becomes. And I think perhaps the most important thing to remember is that as much you know, anxiety and, and angst that we can hold sometimes about having those conversations just to know that other people are feeling the same way too. So mm-hmm. we want to connect. We want to have more meaningful conversations. And so opening that door to vulnerability and to depth, it gives other people permission to step through and occupy that space with mm-hmm. you. That's good. Yeah, I love that word vulnerability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brene Brown talks about it a lot. Yes. You know, the willingness to be vulnerable, to show your true self, yes. you know, not to have the mask mm-hmm. that's up well what we'll do um we can put things in the show notes so if people are listening they'll be able to go in and then click and find out and it sounds like the events are going pretty regularly right so yes. yeah there, once a month. there will be one coming up soon whenever you listen to this <laughs> yes yep so the yep. next one in Christchurch is september 13th mm-hmm. um and as i mentioned they always sell out so depending on when when this gets posted if we're not already sold out it's probably it a good be. idea yeah. to yeah get tickets but soon. come back next month if it's sold out Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's good. Well, um, I'd like to finish off, but before we do that, we started with a poem. And I'm just curious, can you just tell us what it is about poetry that you love? Because you were very kind. You brought me a book by Annie Dillard, who we talked about this before, yes. that she's one of my favorite writers. Mm-hmm. And she's, for example, she's written found poems where she'll, yes. she'll read a book and then kind of pull out words to make a found poem. Mm-hmm. Um, but for from you, clearly poetry does play a role in your life. Um, I'm just curious about that for you. What does it mean for you? Yeah, well, I think I've always been a lover of words, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that just comes from being a reader at a very young age. But I think there's something quite magical about poetry in that it taps into this sense of emotion that we can't quite get in any other way. And so when I think about poems that have have really moved me or that resonate with me, Mary Oliver is a great example. She's like Annie Dillard in many ways in that, you know, they take very seemingly ordinary situations or objects in some cases and really see them as sacred. And I think for me, that's reflective of the way that I live my everyday life is looking at you know every act that you do as something that's sacred whether it's you know making the bed or washing the dishes or mm-hmm. connecting with someone no matter how how big or small i think ultimately that's really what makes us human and helps us to have a fully human experience is seeing all of those those little bits and pieces of everyday life as sacred in their own way. And mm-hmm. I think poetry taps into that in just this this really ethereal way that nothing else can quite touch. Mm. It's amazing, isn't it, when you can summarize on one page or even half a page 
a concept that you couldn't explain in a book. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. I'll actually, um, I'll throw out a, a roomy quote that I think captures exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a line of one of his poems that says, the whole business of love is to drown in the sea. And when I first read that, I thought, oh my goodness, if there ever was a description of what love is, I can't think of a better one than that. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that is just a shining example of what poetry and weaving together words in this way can really do is it just, Mm -hmm. it touches a part of you that, um, that's really hard to express in any other way. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, I, I love writing therefore probably i love writing poetry and one of the things i try to do is for every guest to write a poem for the guest because it's a way for me to sort of cement that conversation that we have because i love every conversation i've had on this podcast i've just enjoyed each one and so it's a way to say that was sacred (laughs) that was special and here's the key things that from you know the lenses on my from my end Mm -hmm. here's what really stood out and um, I feel like it really crystallizes in a way that nothing else could. Yeah, you know? that's like a, it's one thing to send an email and say thanks very much, but it, yeah. Anyway, that's a really beautiful practice, and I think it actually comes back to what we were talking about with connection. And mm. I think as much as connection comes naturally to us as human beings, there is also an element of it that if we want it to be truly deep and meaningful and resonant there is a part of it that needs to be cultivated and considered very carefully. And mm-hmm. so a practice like that or something I often do before I'm you know, meeting a friend for coffee or whatever interaction I'm going to have is just taking, even if it's a minute in my car to maybe do a, a meditation and think about that person. And if it's someone I know to consider, you know, what did we talk about last time? What might they be going through? Mm. Um, what might they need in terms of, you know, my energy and presence today? And then doing something similar at the end of that interaction, whether it's, you know, journaling or just doing a brief meditation to mm. to really seal that interaction and exactly like you said to treat it as sacred because mm. I think every interaction that we have with a human being whether it's you know the cashier at the supermarket or a deep conversation with a friend there is something really incredibly beautiful and, and sacred about it yeah yeah the words that spring to mind for me are being present being mindful mm. and just cultivating that you know i guess it's acting with purpose yes approaching our lives with purpose and um, that's sort of what has come through for me and in lots of what we've talked about you know um so it's been really great uh and i just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been awesome i knew that we were going to talk about a lot of deep things and (laughs) we did (laughs) so that's great and um yeah if people are interested in unchatter and finding out more we'll put some links in so they can find them but thank you so much for your time and um coming and talking with me today thank you so much Stephen. it was a pleasure Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Natasha. I know for me, it was a real highlight because we touched on so many different topics. If you enjoyed it, then consider checking out some of the earlier episodes in the back catalog, subscribe, and leave a rating and review. It really helps to get the word out. Until next time.